Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Amy Starcheski talks about bullet space in Manhattan's Lower East Side, an urban arts collective named for the brand of heroin sold on the block in the mid-1980s. Back then it was a squat, but today it's a partially decommodified co-op sitting in the middle of a rapidly gentrified neighborhood that is anything but squatter territory. Bullet Space has retained its fierce identity, however, as the first building from that era of illegal occupation to become a legal home. Here, Starcheski, director of the Oral History Master's Program at Columbia University, speaks to Maggie Wrigley, who joined the building in the 1980s, and tells us about how squatters found and defended this now valuable little piece of earth, and surprisingly, made it their own, drawing on her 2016 book on the subject, Ours to Lose. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. You know, we still stand here as this little building and, and still painted crazy colors and with our beautiful bottles over the door. You know, and, and as everything has transformed around us, you know, this big building went up behind us, the big apartment building. They put in a running track and a, like a little rose garden in the lot next door. They tore down our twin building, you know, and, and built a new building, a new facility next door. So, that's, you know, and, and yet still sort of in all the photographs through our history, it's this lovely little tenement house that sort of stayed there and it's decrepit, crazy, like, you know, constantly changing, colourful self. As you can probably hear, Maggie Wrigley grew up in Australia, but this place she's talking about with such love, her home, is on the other side of the world. It's 292 East 3rd Street on New York City's Lower East Side. You know, and that's, there's something lovely that, you know, it's, it's still here and it's still standing and it's, you know, still sticking out in the middle of the block. You can, you can tell them 30 years ago and you can tell them now, it's like, you know, you can't miss us. We're in the middle of the block. You don't have to describe it anymore. It is indeed right in the middle of the block between Avenue C and D. It's named Bullet Space after the brand of heroin sold on the block in the mid 1980s, back when the building was occupied by squatters. Maggie was one of them. You might wonder, How could a place so beloved have so little economic value as to be abandoned to squatters? And then what happens when a home built on sweat equity becomes a valuable commodity in a gentrifying city flooded with speculative dollars? How do squatters like Maggie relate to their neighbors and their homes after everything changes around them? These are the kinds of questions I love to ponder. My name is Amy Starcheski. I'm an oral historian and anthropologist. I lived in a squat in Mothaven in the South Bronx in the late 1990s. And then a decade later, as a doctoral student, I followed a few hundred Lower East Side squatters as they became homeowners. I wanted to know what it would be like for them to experience the transition from being illegal squatters to becoming legal homeowners. And Bullet Space was the first building to complete that process, becoming a low-income co-op in 2009. Bullet space is indeed a constant presence as the block has changed around it. But today, it looks different than it did when it was an illegal squat. Putting windows in the front of the building was an interesting moment because, you know, it had always been our canvas for our murals and stuff, the cinder blocks. Um, And all of a sudden you felt kind of weirdly, like, respectable and strange. It's like, this is not my house. Um, But it is. So, uh, you know... That was, that was a pretty transforming moment. Bullet Space was home to many artists, and they did treat the building as a canvas. 
For a while, in the early 1990s, the facade of Bullet Space was painted a clear, bright red with cobalt blue windowsills and sunny yellow window frames. The entire ground floor was coated in a grid of neatly wheat-pasted posters, agitprop art about the AIDS and homelessness crises or Puerto Rican independence, all of them silk screens from a large-scale, limited-edition artist book created by residents. That book, Your House is Mine, is now in the collection of MoMA and the New York Public Library. In a band of black paint crossing between the first and second floors, bullet space was stenciled in white capital letters. Squatters in other buildings tried to hide their occupations, blending in with their neighbors. Bullet space did not. So today it blends in more, but if you know how to look or you're paying attention, you might see signs of bullet space's unique history when you walk past it. The space above the front door is filled with circles of concentrated light, a mosaic made of colorful recycled bottles embedded in turquoise mortar. It was made by Bullet Space resident Rolando Politi, an Italian-born artist. If you keep your eyes open, you can see similar work on other former squats in the neighborhood. It is, as Maggie said, a lovely little tenement house, with seven apartments spread over four floors and a gallery on the ground level. It was built in the late 1800s, when the Lower East Side was filling up with similar tenements constructed to house immigrants and poor people. On Maggie's block, only a few of them are left. Bullet space still stands while others burned or were demolished, in large part because squatters took care of it for over 20 years, fighting evictions, avoiding fires, painstakingly reconstructing a building that was falling apart. They started late at night in the winter of 1986. After months of covert planning, squatters with a sledgehammer hidden inside a guitar case smashed their way into the abandoned tenement that would become bullet space. To come back to one of our original questions, why was this building abandoned? New York City was losing the industrial jobs that had sustained its working class. In the aftermath of the fiscal crisis of the 1970s, the bankers that now controlled the city's finances insisted on cuts to the social services and even basic services like firefighting that kept dense neighborhoods like the Lower East Side functioning. Racist restrictions on mortgage lending in neighborhoods where people of color live made it hard to invest in the Lower East Side. Landlords, who saw their profits dwindling, stopped maintaining their buildings, stopped paying taxes, and stopped providing heat and hot water to tenants. Sometimes, they burned their buildings to collect insurance money. The city took possession of more and more poorly maintained tenements from landlords who did not pay their taxes. So while street homelessness was exploding, the city owned tens of thousands of empty apartments. Inspired by European radical squatting movements, American urban homesteading, Latino-led anti-displacement activism, and DIY punk, Lower East Side squatters used direct action to put people who needed homes into vacant buildings that needed care. And they needed a lot of care. At that point, because the house was extremely rough, um, there was no plumbing upstairs, there was no... The, the electricity was, was like extension cords um, run up with a, you know, like a, you know, breaker for each, each, who, each apartment to run their own extension cord in here. So it was, it was, you know, we had one little radiator for the winter. So basically the work to be done was, was all rubble, demolition and, and just clearing, clearing spaces and pulling down the rotten stuff that was there. Yeah, so we moved in. You know, basically just sealed up like this corner of the place to, to you know, just ran plastic over all the walls, over all the windows um, and the floor, you know, stuck a hole in it for the heater, you know, and, and, and just tried to survive the winter. You know, and then once it, the, the weather changed, then we could start doing work more. Otherwise, it was just, you know, survival, basically, in the early winters. <laughs> 
everybody worked together. Um, everybody was helping with each other's space. I mean, the, the, I think the, the early part was building a bathroom or about putting a bathtub in with a hot water heater, uh, which was down in the lobby. <laughs> uh, we did have a toilet. It wasn't connected to, it was connected to a waistline. It wasn't connected to an, an incoming water uh, line. So that took a couple of years. So the bathroom, the toilet, had all these empty compound buckets and we would all take turns as super um, and your responsibility was to keep the water buckets filled so that people could flush the toilet and you know which was uh, you know it's funny that I first moved in and I could hardly carry like a, a full bucket of water you know and then you know after a little while you're, you're like you know hauling multiple buckets of water you get strong living here you know you got uh you, you definitely uh got strong living in a squat and um you know winter time it was brutal it was cold it was freezing and you, you know you you got to open a hydrant with a wrench and then fill up these water bottles and i mean water buckets and carry them carry them back into the house and you're it's you know it's it wasn't fun you know, you'd have to crack the water to like pour it down the toilet. <laughs> my dog's, you know, my dog's bowl would freeze. My shampoo would freeze. My, you know, everything would freeze in the house. The toilet would freeze. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was bitter. It was very bitter. And this building basically acted because we had a, a wall exposed to the elements here on this side. And, you know, you could just feel the cold radiating off the walls. It was, um, it was like living in a refrigerator. While the squatters did the hard physical labor of turning abandoned tenements into homes, New York City sat on most of the buildings that had accumulated, sometimes for decades, because they were worth so little. But by the 1990s, the city was selling off its collection of land and buildings, including some of the squats. Developers waited in the wings for these city-owned buildings to be evicted so they could build market-rate housing in a now-booming city. Squatters resisted eviction using every tool at their disposal, from petitions on clipboards to direct action, physically defending their homes. Of course, this whole time there was this awful, you know, there was an ongoing onslaught of attacks on the squats. So um, actually it was terrifying at times. It was, you lived with a lot of stress. Um, I, I kind of forgot about the stress. It was an incredibly stressful way to live. And you lived in terror a lot of the time. And I mean, we had barricades um, by the front door. We had, um, uh, you know, we had the eviction watch list and, and, and we would have to come out, you know, because buildings were, buildings were um, being lost. And it was actually a very combative uh, atmosphere. It was an, uh, the police were harassing us terribly in in many ways just on the street or um with you know onslaughts of you know evictions the, the cops were basically doing you know the evictions with riot police all the you know that was sort of the the the, the method or they'd send in you know the uh, not contractors but the uh the city would you know be demoing the place next door and they'd be trying to crack your building and and getting you out that way and and so it was this constant battle of um uh, survival against the city, the city. Um, they hated us. The cops hated us. And we had, you know, I remember like peddling down in the middle of the night with our eviction papers to, to, you know, a sympathetic judge who would put a stay on anything. 
we were like, we're here. You can't, you know, you can't pretend that there aren't people in all these buildings, you know. So it was really, uh, you know, we had marches, we had crazy, you know, the community board meetings were <laughs> insane, you know, people with drums and whistles and hollering and, you know, we didn't endear ourselves to the community board, but we were not going to be unheard. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we had a fire and, and people just, just, people just, all day just came over with tools and with, because they smashed all the windows, obviously the firemen smashed every window in the building, which opens you up to being declared, you know, an unfit building or an uninhabitable um, building. And, and people just rode up all day. What size windows do you need? Give me some measurements, you know, I'll, I'll go through our stocks. And, you know, there was a, a big support beam that had got burned out downstairs. And, and by nightfall, it was, it, there was a new one up, you know, and I, I came back, I went to the hospital because I had smoke, um, but, uh, I came back and there's all these wonderful men in my apartment, like installing windows and like, you know, just cleaning shit up that, you know, from the water damage. And, you know, I mean, the, the community was, is, is just been amazing. And, and as, you know, as, as varied as we all are, uh, that, the power of that kind of community and, and, you know, rushing out at the crack of dawn because you got an eviction watch call, you know, and, and all the support that wrapped around, you know, this, this movement was, was so just, it was incredible. It was fantastic. It was very inspiring. It was something that was unique to its time and its place, I think. And, and, uh, and it's still a community, you know, it's, it's, it's still a, a community. And it's, it's, it's amazing what we've achieved, you know, from this sort of, you know, rat bags and, and, you know, riffraff and rebel rousers that we, that we were perceived as. Nobody really thought that the squatters could win, but they kept fighting. It wasn't even clear what winning would look like. Some squatters wanted to eventually own their buildings, while others opposed private property on principle. Some were building comfortable homes, and some just tried to survive. Some, like Maggie, identified with the squatting movement and its politics, while others just needed a place to stay, and this was what they could get. Lower East Side squatters were decentralized, without a nonprofit or community organizer behind the scenes calling the shots. And it was true that the city government hated them. And so it was really surprising when, in 2002, the city and squatters announced that they had made a deal. The city would transfer 11 of the 12 remaining Lower East Side squats to a nonprofit intermediary for $1 each. The nonprofit would take out loans to renovate the buildings and bring them up to code. When the squatters became homeowners, those loans would become mortgages. The squats became limited equity, low income co ops. This means that there were limits on how much the now former squatters could resell their apartments for. For the average apartment, it started at about $125,000, and on how much income future buyers could have. Everyone involved estimated that the process might take a year, maybe two. It took bullet space seven years, and they were the first to finish. Now, 17 years after the deal was announced, the last buildings have just become co-ops. The renovations were more expensive than expected, and some squatters worry that they just traded the risk of eviction as squatters for the risk of eviction as foreclosed homeowners. You know, and we have to worry about the survival of the building with the survival of everybody else. So now we're really reliant. We're, we're completely tied in with these people, for better or worse, <laughs> you know, with the people in, in, in the co-op. And uh, that, that's a fragile ecosystem, really, you know. And like I said, you know, four of the two, two are elderly. 
uh, one is sick, one's a, a you know a, a young poor family. So uh, it's uh, there's a lot of factors that you know everybody. It seems like everybody's always on the edge, you know. And yeah, it's a it's a lot more of a burden. Um, but you know, like I said, we have a security. You know. It's something that we can anticipate. When we were squatters, you know, there was a, a, a constant insecurity and a constant fear and a constant um, onslaught of whatever. You know, it could be anything. If your neighbor fucks up and sets fire to the place, they could kick you out. You know, if they want to evict, you know, then we go through that process. If I mean, it's it's a different set of it's a different set of worries. You know, my life's a little more stable than it was before. Um, now that I'm legal, so you know that's I'm in a, a better position to sort of hold on to something that is legal, which I you know I could never could have before. But um, do you mean legal as a homeowner or legal in terms of immigration? I mean, legal being legal now, um, having my green card means that uh, you know I, I I can do this. I can you know I'm I am a homeowner and it's incredible, and uh, you know as long as we keep our act together then nobody can put us out you know and that's it we we got it you know we it's our, it's our building it's ours to lose really some buildings um you know they're looking at because they always refuse to pay fees or you know i know i mean i know there's lots of buildings where some people just would never pay and just held on through you know sort of their brute force and or presence and those people are you know they're 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 being put into a very different situation where you know that's you know the people that live outside of the you know the grid it's it's a, a huge hardship and that's that's something that's been lost really is because you know it used to the squats used to be places where you know everybody could find a home and everybody could could survive and you know you could you could get credit for your you know sweat equity and and that would be as valid as anything else and um and so there's there's a lot of there's a I guess a lifestyle or there's people who who's who thrived in that circumstance and I guess a lot of us did because you know we held on and we we did we we thrived we succeeded and that is no longer a criteria now the criteria is paying our mortgage and you know and keeping the paperwork together and and getting you know the reports in and getting the you know the 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 yearly meetings you know audited and and all this stuff and that's a very different you know thing so before you know i mean it was you know it has its own set of problems but it's there's a lot of the freedom is gone for sure the Lower East Side is now heavily gentrified. Market rents are super expensive. Storefronts are filled with fancy restaurants, boutiques, and bars. On a warm Friday night, the sidewalks are basically impassable, filled with groups of revelers come to soak up the cool. But a century of housing organizing and struggle has also left its effects. Public housing, rent stabilization, a community land trust, and low-income co-ops like the former squats add up to a significant stock of affordable housing. In 2017, the neighborhood was still 40% Latinx, with 25% of the population living under the poverty level. Bullet Space, one lovely little tenement on a quiet side street, is part of something bigger. It's part of a future for New York City where artists, immigrants, poor people, and people of color still have a place. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. 
Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. 